Sunday, November 17th, 2019, was our first teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And here we are, April 16th, 2023, and it's time for our last installment in this book. How crazy is that? Yeah. Woo! That was a little, little weak. It's fine. Um, usually my goal is to, like, uh, kind of think about the passage conceptually and figure out what about this passage, like, um, addresses a, a question that we all have in life or, like, a, a tension that we're dealing with and how does this passage um, deal with that? And I try to talk about that up front to kind of, like, hopefully help us get a little bit interested. But, man, this passage is like incredibly well-known. It's the last one in the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to open to 20, chapter 28, um, very well-known. And one of the reasons why it is so important and maybe why you might be interested for us to just dig into it today uh, is because the only reason that you are here, the only reason that I'm here, the only reason that we are here is because someone somewhere did what this verse talks about. Someone somewhere had to do it. Many people in a, in a long line of our spiritual heritage obeyed this. We literally couldn't be here if Jesus' followers before us uh, hadn't read these words and obeyed Jesus. And so there's that. Um, also, if you've been with us, and most of you have, for some or most of this journey through the Gospel of Matthew, this um, passage tonight is kind of what it's all been leading up to. Like it's, in one sense, yes, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is like the culmination of the story arc, but from like a liter, literary perspective, this last moment is what Matthew's kind of been building to. And so that's important. It's where it's all been leading. We call it the Great Commission, but Matthew didn't call it that, and Jesus didn't call it that. The NIV or Bible editors chose to do that. Um, but it's basically like the ultimate therefore section of the Bible. There's lots of those, like particularly in the New Testament letters where Paul will say the word therefore. He's like, he writes all this stuff, like a you know, chapter, half a chapter worth of something, and then he'll say therefore, and then what he proceeds with has everything to do with what he wrote all before it. And this is like the ultimate version of that. Matthew has just shared 28 chapters of the life of Jesus, culminating in his death and resurrection and now we have a therefore, in light of all that Jesus has done and what's just happened particularly, here's what we do as his disciples. So these are Jesus' marching orders for his disciples, what to do while we wait for him to come back. And so I ask you, what comes to mind when you think about the phrase, the Great Commission? Is that even something that you think about often? Or what comes to mind when you think about the idea of making disciples? Maybe you think about um, uh, missions, like overseas missions, like a missions trip somewhere to another country where there's evangelism happening, someone like in a stage in front of people presenting the gospel. Maybe you think about conversion, baptism. Maybe you think about um, what I'm doing, uh, teaching the Bible as part of the Great Commission. Or, or leading people in a church context to kind of attempt to follow Jesus more closely. Maybe you think about um, your own responsibility to uh, share Jesus with those in your life. And all of those things are right, good, and true, and this passage addresses them. 
but by and large, I don't know if this will seems like a downer, but we don't do these things that often, if we're honest. Like all of us right here, right now, we're not currently overseas sharing the gospel. Um, you guys in this moment aren't teaching the Bible. And if your life is anything like mine, moments where we talk to others about Jesus are few and far between, really. For me, it's mostly due to apathy or a lack of spiritual awareness of what God may be doing in someone's life and how I might be a part of that. But also sometimes because those conversations where we talk about Jesus, where the moments where you can say, here's what Jesus has done for me in my life, um, sometimes for them to happen naturally, they just take a long time. Sometimes years of friendship with somebody. So I say all this to establish and maybe acknowledge, um, maybe just accept the fact um, that as universal as this great commission is, it might not be, um, might not yet be part of our daily or weekly or monthly rhythm of us following Jesus and obeying. We can acknowledge that's something that the Christians should do, but I don't really know that I'm doing it very much. And so my goal tonight is to um, at least ask the question of the Spirit of God, how do you want us to do this? Um, how are those who are not called to like a particular vocational ministry supposed to obey this commission Jesus has sent on? So I'm kind of asking the question, what, what's the great commission for the rest of us? Um, and so let's dig in. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So there are a few things right out of the gate. I'm gonna spend way more time on verse 16 than you thought possible. So um, this passage is kind of in opposition to the one that came before it or in contrast. The first word in the sentence is this little Greek particle that sometimes means then or so or but, depending on the context. So it's meant to show us, um, Matthew means to show us that he sees the story of the disciples going to find Jesus where he told them to find him is in direct contrast to this scheme that the Pharisees have been coming up with in the passage before. They were fabricating a lie about what happened to Jesus' body and Matthew's like, while all that shenanigans is happening, here's what Jesus' disciples are doing. They are looking for him, they are obeying him, um, responding to his call to come and see them. So the point is that this, these disciples, now 11 since Judas had betrayed them, taken his own life, that they have, in spite of their failure and their desertion of Jesus, have responded to his call to come back to him. Where the Pharisees are trying to cover up what, uh, what happened, the disciples are owning up to what they've done and returning to this resurrected Jesus. Two other quick things. There's the mountain and then there's the town of Galilee. Um, the idea of a mountain or a high place or a hill is a theologically loaded term and idea. Mountains, hills, high places, um, they represent where God meets people, where God changes people, where God commissions people, gives them a word. So like, just to quickly trace some of them, God provides um, a sacrifice in Isaac's place on top of a mountain. Moses receives the law atop Mount Sinai. The temple is created atop a mountain or a hill. Zion is called the holy hill. Psalm 24.3, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord or stand in his holy place? Similarly, Psalm 15.1, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? 
Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. High places are the place where God is, where he meets people, where there can be safety. So in Matthew, the teachings of Jesus are, um, that Jesus gives are called the Sermon on the Mount and at the beginning in Matthew chapter five and six. The transfiguration of Jesus happens on the mountain. So mountaintops are important places, places where God is, where God meets people, where God gives a messenger teaching for his people, where God commissions people to follow him. And so it is no accident that Matthew tells us that Jesus has met his disciples here on a mountain or on this hill. And he's kind of like Moses did, he's coming down the mountain um, with this new authority to call his people to action. So lastly and quickly, there's the mountain and then there's Galilee, which is important. Not just because it's where it all started, but because of a reference to an earlier passage in the beginning of Matthew. Chapter four, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. For um, verses 12 through 17, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, <clears throat> Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Galilee represents this humble beginning where the gospel message launched, where Jesus launched his ministry. But it was not going to stay as a ministry just for the Jews. That's why in this Old Testament prophet Isaiah, it's called the Galilee of the Gentiles. It's kind of removed from Jerusalem. It's kind of on the, the outskirts. And so this introductory verse in uh, Matthew 28, verse 16, has set up like everything that the rest of it is going to be about. So let's look at verse 17. When they saw him, the 11 disciples, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This too is a surprisingly complicated verse, though it doesn't seem that way. When they, which is referring to the disciples, saw Jesus, they worshiped him. But it also says that some doubted. Uh, the grammar in the Greek is really strange, um, doesn't necessarily distinguish like um, like our translation does, the Greek doesn't necessarily distinguish between some of the disciples worshiping and some of them doubting. It literally kind of woodenly just says, and seeing him, they worshiped, but they doubted. Um, first of all, the word for doubt that's used here, when, when it's used elsewhere, it's translated as hesitated. And so scholars think that their doubt, the disciples' doubt, isn't unbelief necessarily, but rather, um, one scholar put it as a practical uncertainty, like, how can this be? How can this be Jesus? Interestingly, these two words for doubt or hesitation and worship are also used in the story of Peter walking on the water in Matthew 14. He's walking on the water and he sinks and Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt or why did you hesitate? And then it says, after Jesus got back in the boat and the wind and the waves calmed down, it said that those on the boat worshiped him when the storm calmed down. And so what I think is happening is that we have a group of disciples simultaneously worshiping and wondering, how can this be? How is Jesus alive in front of me? And so I'd just like to pause before we even got to the Great Commission, um, hopefully for some relief for you and me, to let this sink in, because I can't think of a more honest and accurate description of the Christian life 
at least the version that I experienced, which is lots of worship and lots of wondering and questions, maybe some hesitation, where I move back and forth between the two. For me, the Christian life is full of belief and doubt and reassurance, like that on this loop. And I think when we do this, that we're in good company with these disciples who saw the risen Jesus and worshiped him and hesitated in the same breath. And finally, we get to the words of Jesus. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, It's pretty easy for us, um, some thousands of years later, to take for granted like a, the robust and clear um, Christology, like the study of Jesus um, that the church has um, arrived at over, again, over quite a while. We have ideas that he's fully God, fully man, lived a perfect and sinless life, humbled himself to become a man. Philippians says he made himself nothing or he emptied himself, didn't consider his godness to be used to his advantage. Again, that's, I'm paraphrasing Philippians. And now he's risen and exalted to this highest place, It's basically all this kind of true, but Christianese jargon that we use that if you've been around church for a while, it just kind of becomes second nature to understand about Jesus. But if possible, I'd like to set it aside and let these words hit us as if we didn't know all that. Um, And uh, what he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Matthew 4, Jesus is offered authority over the kingdoms of the world. By Satan. He's taken up to a high place, and Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, says, if you worship me, I will give all these to you. Um, that Jesus doesn't deny the claim that Satan does have some type of authority over the kingdom of this world is important. He doesn't say, like, um, actually, this isn't yours, it's God's. Um, so in some way, this world was under the rule of Satan. And so Satan offers Jesus a shortcut to reclaim authority which would have um, been a trap for Jesus, but rather Jesus takes the road of obedience and suffering instead. And all this authority around Jesus ends up killing him. The authority of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, um, the authority of Pilate and Rome. So in Matthew 27, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, assigned a grave among the wicked, crushed and afflicted. But in Matthew 28, he is victorious. So the wording of verse 18 is an intentional echo of a scripture in Daniel that's been referenced multiple times already in this gospel in Daniel 7. It says, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus had already at least, at least twice um, used this passage to reference what was happening in his ministry and what was going to happen to him. Um, and both times that he did it, if there were not more, it caused the religious leaders to want to kill him. Um, and they did that. And that was his means to get to this fulfillment of Daniel 7. He's on the other side of that scripture in Daniel 7 fulfilled. R.T. France, a Bible scholar, says, the risen Jesus, vindicated over those who tried to destroy him, is now established as the universal sovereign. 
And his realm embraces not only the whole earth, which was to be the dominion of the one like a son of man in Daniel's vision, but heaven as well. In other words, for Jesus, after his resurrection, everything has changed. And it's weird to talk about how something has changed um, for Jesus or, or that his status has changed. We talk about God being unchanging, which is true in a sense, but the whole premise for what Jesus is about to say in the Great Commission is based on the fact that now, after his death and resurrection, his victory, his vindication, he now, he didn't before, but he does now have supreme authority over everything that is. And it is on that foundation that he commissions his followers. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So there's five key words in that great commission. That's probably the verse or the, the passage you've heard before lots. There's go, make disciples, all nations, baptize and teach. Kind of some of the operative words in there. So in short, here's how I think these words work together. There's the main command. The only actual imperative in the sentence is to make disciples. That is the main command, the main idea. Um, all nations is where these new disciples should come from. Not just Israel, not just Jerusalem, but from all nations. Going is the command to like, not just Jerusalem, but we have to go out and make disciples from all around, not just Israel. And then finally, baptizing and teaching are like the means of making and the characteristics of a disciple. So much has been made of the kind of grammar and different types of verbs and words that are in this passage because it is such a big deal. A lot of time and effort has gone into it from Bible scholars and church leaders. Um, so those that might view discipleship as um, primarily instructing Jesus' followers to obey, kind of fulfilling that part of the Great Commission, they like to point out that the only imperative verb here is to make disciples. And so the going aspect and the baptizing aspect and the teaching aspect, those are all something called a participle, and they basically just serve to kind of highlight what it means to make a disciple. And so people in that camp sometimes underemphasize the fact that we do need to go and preach the gospel everywhere. Those that have a heart for like long-term, over-a-lifetime incarnational evangelism with neighbors and family and friends, coworkers like to point out that um, our nation that we live in counts as all nations. Um, we don't have to go somewhere other than right where we are to fulfill that go into all nations concept. Um, others that view disciple making as primarily evangelism, preaching, getting people to um, convert and be baptized, um, rightly point out that when uh, a participle precedes an imperative, sorry for all the grammar, the first participle being go, like essentially meaning like as you're going, when there's a participle before the actual imperative, which is you must make disciples, that first participle is supposed to take on the like commanding force of the actual imperative. And so the command to go is dependent on the command to make disciples, um, but it is still part of the commission to go into other nations for the disciples besides Israel. And so 
I don't actually agree with or like the translation where people sometimes say, like, as you're going about your life, make disciples. I actually think there is the command, we need to go. Um, we need to go out and preach the gospel. I'm not really sure why Bible nerds and church leaders have uh, fiddled with this so much and kind of danced around it. It just feels, at least at this point in my life, a little more simple and obvious to me. Maybe everyone is a little bit right. It's kind of our human nature to go like, hey, this thing is important. And then when you hear that, you think, well, they must mean that this thing that I think is important isn't very important. And so then they're like, no, this thing is important. It's a fun cycle that we do. Um, But the theology of the body of Christ, spiritual gifting, and the movement of the spirit in the world and in us should allow us to focus on different things as a church. And so with that, we can acknowledge that the text has established that going is a part of Jesus's commission to us, getting up and moving somewhere where the gospel hasn't gone and bringing Jesus there. Jesus wants his disciples mobilized, sent out as missionaries to make disciples. And again, in their immediate context, that meant going out from Galilee, maybe going past Jerusalem and telling others about Jesus. And this is a change from the mission that they were sent on by Jesus in Matthew 10, where he tells them to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the game has changed because Jesus now has authority over everyone, everything, everywhere, no longer just over Israel as their king. He now holds authority over the entire cosmos. And so in our context, this means that anywhere, wherever we may be attempting to lead someone to Jesus, that counts as going. It also means the church needs to be willing to go where others aren't going or where others haven't gone before. The Spirit of God equips and empowers people and organizations to do this um, all the time, and it's a beautiful thing. Okay, so we've got sort of the going part and the all nations part. It's not just in Israel. Um, The next part is uh, the actual command of the passage, which is to make disciples. The word for disciple is methetes. Um, and the word for make a disciple, which is what we have here, is uh, o. So it's like the word for someone who like uses their legs um, to move quickly is a runner. The verb is just to run. Um, someone who runs is a runner. Someone who evangelizes is an evangelist. And we are disciples who are commissioned to disciple. It can be a noun and a verb for us, sort of. We are commissioned to make disciples. Now, before we say that word one more time, let's refresh on what the word disciple means. If you use it today outside of the context of church, you might get a funny look. People might think that you were in a cult. Um, The best equivalent, I think, that we have today, the idea of a disciple is like an apprentice in a trade. They sign on to follow around a master and learn what he does. The master shows them how to do the thing, they watch, they learn, and then they do the thing. So this is the pattern, um, sort of, that Jesus' disciples followed. They were with him all the time. They followed him around. They wanted to become like him, and they wanted to learn to do what Jesus was doing. And that's the idea with discipleship, then and now. We're not just people who believe that Jesus exists, or even that we believe that he is who he says he is. Those are good, but we are his apprentices. And so our goal is to follow Jesus as his students, to learn from him Uh, to become like him and do the things that he has asked us to do. So when Jesus asks us to make disciples, he doesn't mean convince someone that I'm real or 
or persuade someone uh, to ask for my forgiveness for their sins, those are parts of the process, but Jesus is asking us to recruit apprentices to follow Jesus for life. And how that happens and what that looks like, Jesus explains with the rest of the Great Commission. And it happens uh, through baptism and teaching people Jesus' commands. And all of this through the power and the presence of Jesus himself. So I think baptism and teaching describe kind of like both sides of the coin of someone becoming a disciple. Um, They are uh, the means of making one and also the characteristics of someone who is a disciple. Uh, Craig Blomberg, a Bible scholar, said that the first of these, baptism, will be a once-for-all decisive initiation into Christian community. The second proves a perennially incomplete lifelong task. Baptism represents someone dying to their old life and raising up to their new life or their new self. And so the image of baptism like inherently means you can't go back. Like you're, you are dead. Your old life is over. And so when Jesus says make disciples, baptizing them, the idea is that someone has to die to themselves, submitting to the lordship and the authority of Jesus and joining his family for good. So in essence, Jesus is saying a disciple needs to be converted, to be born again. Jesus also says that making disciples also requires that we teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, which is a tall order. And we read that sentence and we think, teach them to obey everything in the Bible. Um, But again, I want to just read this for its context here. Matthew, Jesus is referring to everything that he's commanded them like in this book, everything that Matthew has lined out for us in their discipleship journey. So that would be like the Sermon on the Mount, the passages in like Matthew 18 where Jesus is talking about the life of the church and forgiveness and reconciliation, the passages on caring for the poor and those in need. I think this is probably what Jesus was specifically referring to. The whole Bible is fair game when it comes to discipleship for sure. But I do think that Jesus' emphasis was on his commands to his disciples when he was with them. Grant Osborne said, Jesus mandates that all mission activity emulate his pattern of discipling followers as exemplified in this gospel. They must be brought to understanding and to that deep ethical commitment patterned in the Sermon on the Mount and the community discourse, which is like Matthew 18. Then they will become trained as disciples in the kingdom. So the commission is to go anywhere and everywhere, not just Israel, and make new apprentices of Jesus, making sure that they are baptized, converted, old life dead, new life truly committed to Jesus, and then teaching them over time to show their commitment to Jesus through obedience to his commands, to his way of life. And then the Great Commission ends with perhaps the most important part. The end of verse 20, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, The NIV says, surely I am with you. ESV says, behold. I love the, um, what is it? The NET says, remember, I am with you. So that Greek word translated there is often, most often translated as behold. Anytime you see behold in the Bible, it's that word. But it can mean look or take notice, or I really like in this case, remember. So the whole reason 
that Jesus can send his disciples on this mission, the foundation that enables its success, any success, is the presence of Jesus. He says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. A few things about that. The phrase that we translate uh, as always means literally every day or in every moment. And so when we add that to you know, every day, every moment, until the end of the age, we're meant to get the picture that there will be no point in time where any disciple of Jesus is without his presence in their life. Every moment, every day, from now on until he returns. D.A. Carson says, not, not just the horizon is in view, but each day as we live it. Second thing, uh, Jesus is promising to be with us. And Matthew, um, writing this as the very last verse of the book, is an, uh, an intentional, it's a nerdy literary device called an inclusio, where two, like, sometimes verbatim ideas or very similar ideas are at the very end of something and at the very beginning of something. They form these brackets or these bookends. And the point is that whatever is in the middle is supposed to be supporting these two things uh, or demonstrating how these two things on the bookends are true. And so in Matthew 122, he's writing about how the birth of Jesus was in fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy, which Matthew does over and over again. But what he says is that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so here at the end of the story, Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, promises to be with us always to the end of the age. And the last thing, though Matthew doesn't mention it here, Jesus mentions it elsewhere in John, and then Luke accounts for it in Luke and Acts. But the way that Jesus remains with his disciples, um, the way that he is with us always to the end of the age, is through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that every disciple has, and which Jesus promised to send after he ascends into heaven. That's the book of Matthew. We're done. I can't believe it. I'm pretty sure that we read every single verse in that, in that book here. I don't think that we skipped anything. If we did, it wasn't intentional. <laughs> One more time, just for good measure, Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Next week, we'll get started again. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'm just going to do a quick four-year refresher on the book that we took four years to get through three years. Uh, so we'll close with some, some thoughts about the Great Commission. So I was thinking about kind of asking the question at the beginning about like the, the Great Commission for the rest of us. Not one of the 11 disciples, not an international missionary or evangelist, not a pastor. How, how does one do this? So the first thing I think that we have to remember is that we ourselves, first and foremost, are disciples. We ourselves need to follow Jesus. How can we, I mean, imagine you're in the first century and you're an actual, like one of the, one of the disciples that is physically following Jesus around. How could you possibly invite someone to follow him if you weren't with him inviting someone to come with you? I might dare say that that maybe is the one thing that we should focus on, if anything, is ourselves following Jesus, and maybe the rest would follow naturally. If we focus on being with Jesus, 
focus on becoming like him in his character and learning to do the things that he did, the things he asked us to do, all of that would create a healthy disciple in you and me. And healthy disciples just multiply. That's what happens. But honestly, that's probably the hardest part of making disciples is being one in the first place. You can learn uh, to be bold and share the gospel for a moment. Uh, you can learn to encourage someone who's kind of wandered away from Jesus. That takes a moment. But the long, difficult, winding journey of following Jesus yourself is incredibly hard. And I know for me, the times when I think about the disciples I'm not making, and when it just seems like so far off, like, why am I not doing that? Um, those are usually the times that I just, I already feel distant from Jesus in my discipleship. And so that might be the, maybe the first and most important encouragement as much to myself as I could give to you is just to follow Jesus. It's the first step that has to be taken uh, and it needs to be taken every day in every moment. If you want to make a disciple, we have to be one. Follow Jesus first. Second thing, maybe tied as most important and also least remembered is that Jesus promises to be with us in that process. And so the encouragement here is to remember and rely on Jesus' promise to be with you. It is the foundation and the reason why anything good, anything of substance can come from our attempts to make disciples. It won't be because we're very good at it. It'll be because Jesus, the Spirit of God, is working in us and around us and through us. And so it removes the need for us to strive um, it, can it can remove our fear, removes the need for perfection to plan things out perfectly. It should, and I <laughs> pray for myself, um, remembering that Jesus is with us, it should remove my spirit of skepticism and unbelief that people can change. If the very spirit of God is with us and at work around us, then nothing is impossible. So I feel like it's worth taking a moment to think about the person or the people in your life um, who you know God has placed around you on purpose. I don't know who that is, but I'm almost positive that you know exactly who it is right now in this moment. Someone that doesn't know Jesus or someone that has abandoned Jesus. Like me, have you forgotten that Jesus has promised to be with you in every moment, in every conversation that you might have, that you could have, he's with you. When we feel afraid of, of kind of moving the needle with that person a little bit more towards a conversation about something of substance, a conversation about Jesus, when we feel nervous to do that, he's with us. When we're convinced this person is not interested in Jesus, in the first place, they're not interested anymore. He's with us and he's working. It's becoming one of my, I don't know, conviction isn't the right word. Something that, I've, that has been helpful to me is remembering that uh, Jesus is always working. I, th I think about it with you guys often. There's a temptation for me to feel like I'm, I'm trying to like, uh, create something that I hope is engaging for you. And then I just realize how, how wrong it is for me to think of it that way when, when I remember that 
every single moment of every single day this last week when I wasn't thinking about any of you, God was. And he's, he's wanting to get your attention and man, I just hope that whatever we do at Valley Church, whatever I think to say in these moments and the moments that we're praying and worshiping are serving to push you to the God who's, who's seeking you already, you know? And that's happening with the people in your life who don't know Jesus yet or the people who did and have, have uh, abandoned Jesus. He is sleeplessly, tirelessly trying to get their attention. And you are around them maybe for the uh, very purpose of being used by Jesus to go, to go get him. And we need to remember that he is with us when we do that. So focus on following Jesus yourself. Remember and rely on his promise to be with you. And then lastly, um, quickly, I'll just kind of summarize, I guess, or reword uh, the Great Commission in a way that might help it uh, hit a little simply. We sh- our job is to help someone start following Jesus or help someone continue to follow Jesus. I think that captures the um, Great Commission well. Making disciples, baptizing, and teaching. We get to jump again. We get to jump into a story that God is already writing. God is pursuing and has been pursuing the person or the people in your life that you may want them to meet Jesus. He's already been at it. We get to come into that process and help someone, maybe for the first time, um, be introduced to Jesus, to start following him, to be converted, to cross from dead to alive. Or maybe we get to jump into the story um, as a brother or sister to someone else, a fellow disciple, someone who has wandered away. Maybe we get to be someone that helps someone continue in their discipleship journey. Um, I th- that is every bit the disciple-making that Jesus has called us to. I kind of think this is what Ephesians 4 refers to when it talks about the, the church um, speaking the truth in love to one another, building itself up to maturity and unity. This is very much part of the disciple-making process that we do for one another. And so when you participate in your community, when you remind someone to be there or to be here, when you come to church, when you pray for one another, when you worship, if and when you lovingly correct or encourage a brother or sister in their obedience to Jesus, encouraging them to follow him, um, it can seem like that's just you following Jesus, but that's a part of the disciple-making process. So if you're like me and maybe often feel down on yourself for not sharing Jesus with 10 strangers every week at the bus stop downtown, uh, remember that your commitment to the body of Christ and your willingness to point brothers and sisters to Jesus, that is disciple-making. But man, helping someone, being a part of someone starting a journey with Jesus is an amazing thing. And it, a th- it's a thing that I wish I, I wish I couldn't count the number of times I've been a part of that on my hands. <laughs> but it's rare for me. Perhaps you have the unique gift of, spir- uh, the spiritual gift of evangelism. Um, and maybe it just happens for you all the time. I know people like that. But if you're like me, it's rare. Um, and I struggle with that guilt. 
um, I also maybe doubly struggle with it as pastor of a church, wondering like, shoot, am I, am I actually like leading people to go do that? It's kind of one way that people talk about what it means to be a pastor is to lead people to do what they otherwise wouldn't. And um, maybe you guys are leading people to Jesus left and right. I don't know about it. But, um, and so I want to end just by saying to you that I'm sorry. I repent for not being um, an evangelist in my day-to-day life. And I would like this place, this church, um, to be a place where that happens in God's timing and enabled by the Spirit of God. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know how much that happens if um, I don't step out into that. And I have, I have people in my life who I know, I know why they are my friend and why they've been my friend for as long as they have been. And so um, I repent to you and to the Lord for not leading in that way. But mostly I want to end just by praying that God would give each of us those opportunities that we would see them with clarity.